Now, if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul's letter to Timothy, final chapter. I'm going to be dealing with half of it this morning and half of it next Sunday morning. But we'll read it all. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they're brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. (laughs) Pleasant words. He has an unhealthy interest in... Remember that Paul is actually writing to to a man ministering to a particular church. He's not just kind of casting into the air here. He has actually got somebody in mind. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world And we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you, were, when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ with God which God will bring about in his own time. God the blessed, the only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen nor can see. To him be honour and might forever. Amen. And off he goes. And he comes back down to earth, remembers what he was talking about. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain but to put their hope in God who provides, who richly provides with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as, for, as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care.
Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. Now, verses 1 and 2, which introduce the chapter, um, pick up the theme of chapter 5, which, if you remember, was responsibility and respect. He's been talking about the responsibility of the church and the role of widows and the place of supporting widows. And then he's talked about those in leadership and specifically those with ministry and leadership and that the, the double honour and the implications of that which, which are to be given there. The final charge, which was in that chapter, verses 11 to 16, I'll take next time. But chapter 6 is connected to chapter 5, and it's a collection of instructions to Timothy to help him to minister. On a number of occasions, if you remember, if you've read through it, he's talked about Timothy and his calling and the gift that God has given and his role in the church. And it all goes back to chapter 3.18, where Paul... In a, almost in a point of crescendo, talks about the church, which is the, 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 the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Remember? And that great vision that he has of the importance of the church. Now, not the church council, um, not the denomination, not the establishment, the people. And it's his vision of who God has made people, or what God has made people into, this ecclesia, these called out ones, that he has joined together for his purposes in the earth. Because of the importance of the church, he calls Timothy to be faithful in ministry and to give instructions to widows, to slaves, and across the board in various aspects of Christian living. And it's, though, it's here that he starts... He's talking about respect and he starts to talk about those that are in slavery. And in the middle of it, he makes reference to what has been called the jewel of Christian contentment. And I just feel that particularly, is it, is it verse 8, uh, verse 6, is, is, for our, is for us as a people this morning. But godliness... With contentment is great gain. And it's almost the hinge pin that my thoughts kind of come back to repeatedly this morning. God, for you, godliness with contentment is great gain. The jewel of Christian contentment. One of the Puritans wrote a book on that. And it, it, flow, it follows on really from chapter 4 and verses 7 and 8. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has great value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And it's quite a poignant re reminder, isn't it? I'll quote Neil Kinnock for three weeks running. Loads of money. That horrible comedian, doesn't he? Ooh, the loads of money, man. And it is true. And we need to be reminded of it. And I find that my heart... It almost, my thoughts and my, and my values need filtering by the scripture on a regular basis or else it starts to hang on me. And, I, and thank you for that reading this morning. My word, how appropriate. That, that the aspirations and values of the ungodly, I absorb. 
And uncritically, I find myself thinking things and valuing things which actually are the exact opposite of what I know the scripture teaches. Godliness with contentment is great gain. So my, the heading on the top of my paper is content with my lot. And I've got two headings under that. Where my lot is cast and what a lot I got. So we'll cast the lot first. Slavery, um, in Paul's day, it said that at this time, one third of all the occupants of Rome were slaves. Some of them were there because they'd been taken prisoner of war. Some of them were there because they were criminals and their sentence was to assign them to slavery. Some of them were there because they were in debt and that debt had put them in a, in a slave position. Some of them had been kidnapped. They used to go around to the next village and bag a slave. Some of them had actually been sold by their parents. If you had too many sons and you didn't want to have to share your inheritance, or even better if you had so many daughters, um, the best thing to do with them if you didn't want to produce a dowry was to flog them off and kind of, you know, have the benefits of the proceeds. That was the way, particularly with daughters, I'm afraid, that uh, that culture thought. Um, and so the, it was even, the, the situation got to such that sla even slaves had slaves. And it wasn't just that the slaves were all the butlers. Your doctor was probably a slave, your physician. Uh, the whole society was was free men and slaves and slaves of slaves. And the slaves of the slaves of the slaves were really not much better than cattle. And they were bought and sold and dispensed with really with, um, with not much thought. And I think in one of the translations the word um, servant is used. Well, servant in Greek is translated by the word diakonos, which is not the word here. This word is doulos. And it's, it's the bond slave. It's a degrading. If you're a free man... Um, it's, a state, it's almost like the Indian caste system. It, it's, the, it's the outcast, the doulos. It's the person without rights and without claim. And you see, really once the church started to move on, a problem, a social problem occurred in the church. You see, on two, on two occasions, in verse 1, he talks about the person who's become a Christian and tasted freedom. Now imagine that you've been a slave, your father was a slave, your grandfather was a slave, and all you've known, all of your expectations were slavery. And suddenly you've come into Christ and you've found personal dignity and a sense of worth. And you know that God is your father. And suddenly the sense of inferiority rolls off you and your identity in Christ is absolutely thrilling. And you go to work the next morning and this chap starts rather curlishly um, treating you like a nobody and you rise up and you say, I'm a somebody. There would be a real problem, wouldn't there? Almost to say, well, you might treat me like that before, but I'm a child of a king, I am. And you, you know, on your knees, boy. And this tension of how do I respond to an overlord now that I'm free in Christ? And it's interesting that actually this issue is dealt with in Ephesians straight away after husbands, wives, children. What's the next section? Slaves. The same in Colossians. It's in Titus 2. And one of the, one of the books, Philemon, is written over the slave problem. It was a major issue in the church. And then in, um, in the second verse, the other aspect of the problem 
We see, when they came together, imagine that Jonathan is a rich landowner. And Mike and Keith are his slaves. He owns them. He's got documents to prove it. They're part of his household clutter. Now, when they're here, hello, brother Jonathan, bless you, brother, glory. And, you know, particularly he's an elder and he's not. Oh, no, just a minute, John. I've got a word of discipline for you. And this is the... You see, there's a... In the fellowship, there's equality. Back home, there's inferiority. I can remember one... It appalled me, but it came back to me this week when I was thinking about this. In the previous church, the local headmistress, who was a real head mom, you know, the old school... Um, you, wouldn't, you just kind of stood back and bowed and all that sort of thing too. And she, she had this, this presence. Uh, but you see, um, Lena was her name. And I, I always remember us in the church porch. And we're the family of God, you know. And they used to call me by my, you know, kind of name. I said, look, my name's David. It's on my birth certificate. I can prove it. And I, I'm just trying to get over the kind of formal, hello, Mr. Ollerton, kind of thing, see. So, and I always remember this little boy walking, hello, Lena, I'm in church this morning, and the volcano starts to erupt. Oh, Mrs. Williams, you got me. It's understandable, isn't it? Because in the fellowship, there was a different relationship to what there was at home and at work, or in that case, at school. And therefore, Paul has to try and deal and address the problem of where my lot is cast. How do I handle my status? And the next verses seem disconnected from it, but I think in the light of that, you'll see that they're not disconnected at all. He starts to talk about cantankerous people, troublesome people, people who are unsettled and resentful and awkward and rebellious, agitators, people who seem to ferment controversy. Now, you can understand, looking at verse 2, why verses 3 to 5 comes in. Because there were those who simply couldn't handle the situation. And they became purveyors of what we would call today revolution theology. And that they were agents of changing the, the, the social order. Now, you might say, well, why didn't the church change the social order? Well, I'll tell you, and it's in verse 2. They didn't change the social order because in take crusading on an anti-slavery ticket would have completely alienated the population and distracted from the main issue of their lives, which was the gospel. That's what he says. That if they had crusaded, the time wasn't right. And in some social ills and social evils, the time isn't right. And if the church takes up a political banner, they can forget the people in the world can think all that they care about is that issue. And we can forget the gospel. And there are Christians in politics and crusading on social issues who are falling into the same trap. The time wasn't right to abolish slavery. It actually came a lot later. But when it did come, it was one of God's men that did it. Was it not? You see, and... There are lessons there. I won't go into that. It's a, whole, it's a whole, whole different sphere. But it actually produces... Let, let me read verses 3 to 5 again. You'll, you'll get the feel of it. Re Realising the conflict in the heart of the slave. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and godly teaching, he's conceited, 
and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. And there were the, the people who were from constantly fermenting hassle. The Christians. The Christian slaves. And we're getting a theology to fit. And Paul just emphasises the importance of godly teaching. And living it out. You can be more powerful as a Christian by accepting your place of slavery. And radiating the love of God. You'll change the mind of the slave owner about slavery more by doing that than you will by grumbling and criticising and constantly fighting the system. And isn't it difficult when you know you're right <laughs> not to fight the system? And so we come to the next verse which just says, talks about contentment. The, the, at the bottom of the word is the idea of self-mastery. It's hard, isn't it, to be a slave knowing you're free and honour your master. Wouldn't that take self-control? To go from here and for Keith to have to go and polish the master's boots, boots and say, yes, master, no, master, and, and, and be servile. That's self-mastery. And... Paul elsewhere says that you're not actually serving him. You're serving the Lord. And you're doing that which is honourable and right. And the Lord knows. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Contentment. Paul, in <clears throat> writing in Philippians 4, says that he's learnt in all circumstances therein to be content. Funny one, isn't it? Which world do I want to get on in? The grass is always greener. Well, if I, if I just got up the next two rungs of the ladder, be content. Well, yeah, but if we only had just a, a house with another bedroom, be content. Well, you know what it's like. If, if only... If only... If only... Self-control will give me a place of contentment with the lot that God has given me. Some of us, you know, always live for tomorrow and don't enjoy today because we're critical of today. Oh, if only I was taller. Or if, if, if only I could get Grecian 2000 to work. <laughs> if only I was thinner. If only I had his car. And I'll come to covetousness in a minute. But always being discontent with the goodness of God to me now. If only I had kids. If only I didn't. <laughs> if only I had a wife. If only I didn't. <laughs> you see, it's completely opposite from the love of God to me. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Lord, make me happy with my lot. Now that's not to stifle 
a man's development. And that's not to say that if the boss offers you a promotion that you say, oh no, don't take it, I'm content with my lot. And that if, um, if a slave was offered his freedom, he would take it. But as long as he was a slave, he would be content and say, Father, you know what's best for me. And actually, you might say, well, that's just teaching Christians to lie down and be trodden on. No, it's not. It's helping Christians to live at peace with themselves in self-control so that they actually enjoy today without waiting for tomorrow to come before they can be happy. His love and his care is right where I am. His grace is for where I am. Not hoping that circumstances would be different. Not there and then. Here and now. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And uh, actually, and I'm sure that we will all appreciate this, the surly, the surly Christian who just resented and you could he just seethed when the master spoke to him he discredits the gospel he blasphemes the name and the doctrine why? well because even the pagan knows that Christians are not supposed to be like that if you've got a heavenly father who loves you what are you chomping at the bit for? if you know that he's sovereign why are you fighting things that only he can change? Now, I don't know who that's for, but it's for someone. And some people I can say, well, it might be for him. But it, no, if it's for you, will you please take it? Godliness with contentment is great gain. But then, that's where my lot is cast. Secondly, what a lot I got. He begins to address two aspects of it, of grasping for more. Loads of money. Verses 7 to 10. Let's, let's read it again so that we refresh our minds. But Verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But, we, but if we have food and clothing we will be content with that. Or will we? People in the south of East England, England can say that without the tongue in the cheek. People who want to be rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. <laughs> wandered there is planeted themselves. It's like a planet going out of orbit. You see, these are Christians. And instead of just going naturally around the sun and doing what Christians were meant to do, off they go, flying away. Completely out of orbit. Um, that, that Paul has already addressed elders and said, if a man has a love of money, he shouldn't be an elder. If his heart wants that, well then let him have it, but he wouldn't be any good to tend the flock of God. And he almost seems to say here that if I really am going for material gain, I'm a kind of spiritual masochist. I, I'm, I'm actually out to destroy myself. He says, well, hang on a minute, David. Give me money. I can't sing like John Lennon, or was it Paul McCartney? But we're in a culture that believes that that's all I need. And here Paul says the very opposite. Jesus talked about mammon, didn't he? You can't serve them both. Money cannot mean everything for me. And for me to prosper and grow spiritually. 
You might say, well, this is a great word for those rich people. No, it's not for rich people. Some people with the least are actually the people most obsessed about money. Because they haven't got it and they want it. And if only I had it, everything would be fine. It's not true. It really isn't. And if I live my life longing for and searching after that, I will plunge myself into many troubles. And I'll make myself very, very unhappy. <laughs> I, I have a friend, I've referred to him on a, on a couple of occasions. Um, a dear brother who was probably the most successful businessman in South Wales. He was certainly the founder member of South Wales's largest solicitor's practice before he went into property speculating and everything else. Very successful sportsman. And I hope that he'll come and speak at a, 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 an outreach meal for us in the autumn. Uh, but I remember him speaking once to a group of men and he said, brothers, he said, it's an illusion. He was converted in Mission England. And he said that ever since then, more and more, the more I've seen of it, He's just developed the whole of Porth Call as a marina and worked hard and get his scheme through and councils out. He said, it's an illusion. There's no happiness in it. And there's a man who, it, it, from, a, from a popularity point of view, at one point was a kind of a Welsh hero. And he's just saying, David, it's an illusion. These people are chasing the wind. Because when you've got it, you've lost it. And it's like that. That's what here the apostle is saying. Naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. That's what Job said. Ecclesiastes 5 says the same thing. And isn't it, there's something very tragic, wasn't there, about Tutankhamun, whatever his name was? And, and the pharaohs, you know, they used to, they were buried in their tomb, and all their servants, and, and great big bags of grain, and, 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 and all the food that they would need for their journey. Sad, wasn't it? Because you can't take it with you. That uh, they opened up. I was listening to a program on the radio. And about this one of the. He was talking about the, the pests of Egyptian times. And that they knew what the pests were. Was because when the pharaohs were buried. And, and all the servants have died. The only things that lived on. Were the little grubs and weevils and things. That ate all the, ate all the, the, all the corn. And when they actually came and opened up the tombs of the pharaohs, there was no grain there. There was just a lot of husks and a lot of skeletons of bugs <laughs> that had eaten the lot. You can't take it with you. And I remember um, A.W. Tozer, a tape I heard of his, that no doctrine is of any worth that is not relevant in the face of imminent death. Quote. But life is like that. You see people, and I, I've not had a lot of funerals here, but previously I used to do funerals, I just, you know, became quite an expert on the subject. And you, you, I, I've been to scores of homes to counsel the bereaved. And it's almost, some of them are young, some of them old. Um, people that I, that rock climbing accidents, and all sorts of, people in all walks of life, death hit them, and hit their families. And suddenly, all the clutter and all the things that they'd wanted, they didn't mean a thing. Not a thing. Who wants a colour telly when your boy's dead? And the whole thing is just cut right through to what really matters. I've never yet found a man on his deathbed worrying about his stocks and shares. 
It doesn't matter, does it? And that's what Paul is saying here. In verse, verses 17 to 19, he adds a postscript. Not for those who want to be wealthy, but for those that are. Command those who are rich in this present world, notice please, that he doesn't condemn a man for being rich. I think that's important to see. Paul is not anti-wealth. He's anti how you handle it. And anti how much you want it. And if he, say, he doesn't say, command those that are rich to give it away. Oh no. No, it's, that's not the heart of the gospel. That the man, in, given those circumstances, must be content with it and must live with it responsibly. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. Two great warnings for those that have got it. To think you're better than those that haven't. Isn't that true? To think that somehow you're a better human because you've got a cushion of financial provision. It doesn't make me a better man, whether I've got it or whether I've not. It doesn't mean that I can feel that I'm important and significant. No, no, no. If you've got it, be, care be careful about becoming exalted and proudful with it. But also don't depend on it. You can go very quickly. And we think about stock market crashes, but um, history proves that the bubble always bursts. The nation that's rich today is poor tomorrow. It's happened before. It happened in the Roman civilization. It happened in the Persian. They're fabulously wealthy. So are the Egyptians. Look at them now. The only, thing they got, the only wealth they got are in the museums. A word, a postscript for those that are wealthy. And in verse 8, this difficult verse, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. There's a sense, you see, in which we need to be detached from what we've got. I remember someone saying to me very early on that it's not a matter of how much you've got, it's a matter of how you hold it. And if the Lord takes it from you, he's not taking you, he's just taking something away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And what brought it home to me this week, um, some people who owned a business in, in South Wales actually came to Hersham in the thought of buying another. And when they found out where this company, they, they have a health food shop and they apparently sell some kind of a jug that you filter water with. I don't know anything like it, but you may have ten of them. But that, that, that was what he was into anyway. And so he came to, oh, I know, it's not where David and Liz live. I will go and see them. So we were out, but nevertheless, they, they found us. And, uh, but because they hadn't met us, they went for a meal on the A3 and paid £30 for fish and chips, which I thought was brilliant. That'll teach him. But Brian, we were just sat in the garden and he, he just, they're money mad around here, aren't they? I said, yeah. So that's all they talk about. I went for an interview with that man about whatever they were, the jokes, and said all he talked about was money, money, money. And how much more, how much more, how much more? He said, I, I, we went for our meal and the people at the next table, what were they talking about? Money, money, money. About how much their house was worth and how much, worth, how much more it was worth now than it was last year. He said, you're money mad up here, aren't you? I thought, am I? Am I really? 
Because the easiest thing in the world would be to say, oh yes, they are. Always thinking about their credit and their, their, their house rises and their profits. Am I? How much do I talk about it, think about it? About how much I've got more than I used to have or how much less I've got than I used to have. Does it really matter? And some of us were talking about the difficulty of first-time ownership. Is it demeaning to live in a council house? Why is it? Should a Christian automatically have a mortgage? Why should he? Oh, but to get into property so that your money will grow. Why should he? And I found myself challenging some of the assumptions that a person who lives in his own house is better than a person who rents one from the council. Why is he? It's not true, is it? Is it? Tell me it's not true. A man isn't, that's not how a Christianist estimates worth, is it? Uh, is it? Am I on my own? Bless you. That we are living in a culture that is setting us a false set of values. And what's wrong with simple living? That if, as I thought the Lord was going to do, we did get a call to Brazil, and we went, and I gave Paul Turner my grandfather clock, and you can have something else, and well, so what? Would I really be poorer? If I spent it all on my plane ticket, would I really be worse off? Do you know something? I would be better off. I would be richer. My stock in heaven would increase. Wouldn't it? And I say, Lord, disentangle me from this love of money. Because it's stronger in me than I would like to admit. I think I'm better than you lot are. (laughs) But there again, I'm probably not. Is that gadget essential? Is my security really in my insurance policies? Is this the best inheritance that I can leave for my children? What is it that I want to endow them with? Godliness with contentment or a third of a part of a mortgage. Ah, oh, but if you pay it this way, you'll have so much more with bonuses in 25 years' time. Ah, let's pay it that way. Come on, brethren, sisters. That's not what it's about. That will never, ever, ever make me happy. Never. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And interesting that when he talks about the the, the rich man in verse 19, he says, handle your life this way so that you might know life indeed. See, he knew. It didn't come with what you've got. It comes with who you are. And what God has made you. Contentment. And uh, he he has to emphasise the great dangers of it all. Philippians 4, 11 to 14. I've learned to abound. And I've learned to be abased. Oh, God doesn't want you to be abased. Sorry. Sometimes that's his part for me. Sometimes he will lift me up and I will know abundance. Sometimes he will take me down and I will know want. That's the way he handles it. He's a father. That's not a sign that he doesn't love me as much as he did last week. 
I remember one chap, this is years and years ago, but it stuck in my head. He said, if you love money, you'll become as hard as the coin and you'll go into your coffin with a clink. But let me try and finish, can I, on a positive note. I need to be in a position where I will accept what he gives. That I will be content with the path that he has allotted for me. I will see that my heavenly father cares for me. Matthew 6. You had it read. There were several things. Several of the words this morning were pointing straight down this line. I hope you didn't miss it. If God can clothe the flowers of the field. And the birds of the air. Who neither sow nor reap. How much more will he clothe you, O man of little faith? How much more value are you than than the sparrows? Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Hallelujah. Because that's true worth, isn't it? A Father's care. He'll look after you in the future, just like he looks after you in the present. And the token of how much he's looking after you won't be in how much you've got. It'll be in how much he's got. And... As I was preparing this, the words, I don't know if you're you're into Marilyn Baker, the blind pianist singer. But there's a song that was a prophecy that she actually put to music. I can't sing it, and I can't remember it all. But these words kept coming back and back to me. Rest in his love. Relax in his care. And know that his presence will always be there. You are my child and I care for you. There's nothing my love and my power cannot do. Hallelujah. Let's stand together. Lord, we want to be freed from a love of money. We know that it's a deceitful thing. We want to be delivered from discontentment with our lot. Lord, we want to love you and rejoice in you and enjoy today and not spoil today with wishful thinking about tomorrow. And Lord, I pray that you will give us hearts of gratitude this morning as we lift our hands and our hearts to you. Holy Spirit, will you come on my life and give me the oil of gladness that will make me rejoice For the blessing of God today. Hallelujah. And Lord, where we have been deceived by the love of money, where we are putting too much store on what we've got and what others have got, Lord, help us to see it, we pray. Open my eyes that I can see how deceived I am. And let me see really what does matter where my security does lie, how well provided for I am. And help us, Lord, to be a people who passes on to our children an inheritance which is of great value, godliness with contentment. In the name of Jesus.